Good morning. Happy Advent season. Um, man, what a sweet time of worship. A great opportunity for us. Uh, I, I just know it's good for me. I'm going through a week. We, we had Thanksgiving and travel and stuff going on and football games and all that. And it's just good to come in here and just uh, hallelujah. He is good. Right? So we are heading into this season. Um, walked in and uh, I, I just wanted to say thanks to all that participated in the decorating. Doesn't it look beautiful? Just, yeah. Um, it's just nice to see the, the shift that we take as we go into the season that we're beginning. And as wonderful as all that is, I thought, okay, I'm kind of kicking off our season of Advent, and, and honestly, I feel a little bit like a Scrooge, um, because Advent, so in my story growing up, Advent was this kind of sweet time. Uh, I grew up in a sweet church, sweet people, but I, now looking back, there was so much that we missed in all the sweetness. I had this little advent calendar, right? I'm sure you've got them, right? And uh, me and my little sister, like one of our favorite things was to go and open the next little window leading up to Christmas day and what would be behind the window. And there were all these little treats and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Wonderful stuff. Please don't hear me saying, don't, yeah, keep doing it. But those things are vacant of what this season is all about. You may not know this, but Advent, like if we ask the question, why do we even do that anyway? Why was it ever started? It was for very different reasons than we do it, culturally speaking. Back in the fourth century, that's where Advent kind of began to emerge. That's where we have the first written record of it. And it actually had next to nothing to do with the, the birthday of Jesus. It had everything to do with a feast called Epiphany. And that feast was really in response to a, a surfacing heresy that had to do with the deity of Christ. And so what the church was trying to do was to, to push back against that and to focus on those significant events in the life of Christ that would assert his divinity. So they looked at the visit of the Magi when they offered gifts for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They looked at his baptism as this moment when God the Father broke in and said, this is my son. And then his first miracle at the wedding in Cana, where he turned water into wine and stunned everyone, even his mother. So Advent was about focusing on those significant events in the life of Christ that affirmed his true identity. That's what Advent was about. Now, then over time, the birth of Christ is obviously significant. His incarnation 
And the church began to see this opportunity to prepare for that as God's people had always been preparing for the arrival of the Savior. So eventually, I think about 6th century or so, there were four Sundays established, all leading up to the day that we celebrate as the birth of Christ. It's interesting that fasting and repentance were the two key practices associated with Advent. That's kind of hard to find these days. It wasn't sentimental. It was transformational. That's what this season was all about. It was an annual liturgy of the church. Christ followers devoted themselves to three things. First of all, to commemorating the arrival. That's what Advent means, arrival or coming. So they commemorated the first arrival of Christ. Then they anticipated his second arrival, the second coming, when all things come to an end and he returns. And then they devoted themselves to engaging in the presence of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was Advent and still is in some places. I pray that that's what it is for us as we engage this season. I want to read again something that um, Kevin, our worship arts pastor, wrote. Um, He'll probably be embarrassed, but uh, I thought it was so good in just capturing in a few words what this season is about. He wrote this in the blog a couple of weeks ago. Go to our website. Go to the blog. You can read all about Advent there. He said this, Advent is tricky. It's not weeks of celebration although that's what we've all grown to believe. It's not weeks of celebration. It's weeks in preparation of the celebration of Jesus' birth. It's an opportunity to sit here between Jesus' first and second coming, meditating on who he is and where we are. Really good. Advent is not about the arrival and coming of Jesus. I'm sorry, Advent is about the arrival and coming of Jesus. Historically less about frolicking in the light and more about waiting and hoping in the dark. This season is meant to jar us spiritually. It's meant to disrupt the status quo that we all live in day in and day out. It invites us to consider where we are in our faith journey and what kind of adjustments we ought to make in light of the truths that we're thinking about. In your notes, maybe an answer to that question, why Advent? Advent is about remembering the first coming of Jesus in order to be ready for his return. That is the single most important event in all of history that is ahead of us, is his return. That's what we're getting ready for. We're not really just trying to make the most of this life. We're trying to get ready for eternity. 
Now, what did Jesus say about his first coming? He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many, and he did. He said he came to make abundant life actually possible for people who are spiritually dead, and he did. His arrival fulfilled God's promise to send a servant, this is from the book of Isaiah, that would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He fulfilled that promise perfectly. During his last few hours with his disciples, Jesus made a promise. This is in John 14, 3. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, just imagine if you and I were to spend the next four weeks consumed with that, that promise that hope, it could change our lives. Advent is really intended to help all of us fulfill our calling to wait well until that promise is fulfilled. So we're going to do our best to be better equipped to wait well than we were before we began this season. Um, It's really impossible to think carefully about the first or second coming of Christ without thinking about the glory of the one who will return. And that was really why we called this series that we're beginning glory. Professor Christopher Morgan said this, it is so central to scripture that is glory that the story of the Bible is in some sense the drama of God's glory. It's all somehow linked back to that reality. Now, when we say glory biblically, we, here's some definition for that. It literally means weighty or heavy, burdensome. That would be the Old Testament term for that. It is full of splendor, it's magnificence, it's superiority, awe-inspiring, inexpressible beauty and majesty. Like there just aren't enough words. If we just piled them up over and over and over again, we still wouldn't quite get there. It's a word we're familiar with. I think it's a word that does sort of inspire us. I just don't know that we fully grasp its significance, especially as it relates to God. God isn't only arrayed in beauty, he's the source of it. His glory is the manifestation of his person, his presence, and or his works, particularly as it relates to his power, his judgment, and the beauty of salvation. All of that directly points to his glory. His glory sets him apart from everything that he has made, and yet that is the very thing that he shares with all that he has made. 
And then wherever that glory shows up, in all that is made, it points back to him and just continues to build upon the glory that he already possesses. King David in Psalm 2410 referred to God as the king of glory. If you want to do a little reflection time, that would be a great psalm to read. In 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18, Peter describes an exchange of glory that he actually witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Read there in the Gospels where he goes up and he sees Jesus transformed before him. Here's what he said about that moment. When he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, that's his title for God, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That glory was so real, they could touch it. The glory of God is sometimes used in the Bible as an adjective or as a noun or as a verb. There's lots of variations in terms of its usage. This is in your outline, but let me just give you a couple of examples. Exodus 24, 17 says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Exodus 40, 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then Psalm 29, 1 through 4, capturing what a response to all of that glory ought to be. David says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. By the way, that doesn't mean you're giving God something he doesn't already possess. You're just simply acknowledging the fact about him. Ascribe the Lord, the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. See, I wonder, as we're celebrating Advent, as we're opening the little windows on our calendars, are we consumed with the most important thing ever, and that is the glory of God in the midst of this season? All of God's attributes are perfect in every way. There isn't a single aspect of God's being that isn't glorious in the fullest sense. God's glory is unique from any other expression of glory because it is intrinsic. And that means that he is glorious regardless of whether anybody recognizes it or not. He just is. You could say that God and glory are synonymous. They go hand in hand, those two ideas. 
I love what Pastor Tony Evans said, trying again as I am, trying to capture this idea. He says, what wet is to water, what blue is to sky, what heat is to fire, glory is to God. Our greatest problem is our relationship to the glory of God. Listen to what the scriptures say, Romans 1. People exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Somehow the glory of those things superseded the glory of the creator himself. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. That's it. That's our problem. We fall short. And yet we live as if we got all we need. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So throughout this Advent season, we want to see the glory of God in Christ as clearly as we've ever seen it. Not for sentimental purposes but so that we might be different. So that after this season of Advent, we would say, you know what? I am not the same. God has changed me. To help us see the glory of God in Jesus, we're gonna spend four weeks looking at John's description of Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. I don't want to assume anything. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're different and yet complementary of one another. John leaves out the birth narrative that we find in Matthew and Luke. So what we typically will read and, and reflect upon for Christmas, that's awesome. But John doesn't include that. What he does is he goes straight at the relationship between Jesus and the Father, like right out of the gates, first paragraph. And I love Professor uh, Bob Utley says this about the opening section of, gospel, of John's gospel. He calls it the Christmas story according to John. Because it actually still accomplishes the very same purpose that the birth narratives do. It's just saying this, hey, everybody, this is God in the flesh. And he does it in a beautiful, beautiful way. We're going to take the first 18 verses. We won't cover every single one, but we're going to go through these passages praying that it will expand our understanding and appreciate it and appreciation for the glory of Jesus first of all as the word secondly as the creator thirdly as the light 
and then finally in the flesh. So I hope you will be able to join us for all four weeks. If you will turn in your Bibles to John 1, we are literally going to take verse 1. And it could be said this is one of the most profound statements in all of our Bible. If you want to know Jesus, you got to get this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. We'll start with that first phrase, in the beginning. John echoes the first words of Genesis, so his original hearers would have immediately thought, hey, that sounds familiar. In the beginning. And he's pointing out the context of reality at the moment creation began. So we're being taken beyond and before everything was made. So if we're thinking about like big questions like, how did we get here? This answers that question. It's pointing to a time when none of this was here, but there was something. Before the beginning, before God created anything, the word was. Now, again, if we'd never read our Bibles, if we didn't know anything, we would go, huh, well, what is the word? What, what is that? It's interesting. John, he used this word purposefully. It was, it was meaningful to both Gentiles and Jews, but for different reasons. The Greek word is logos. And for the Greek mind or the Greek speaker, their concept of logos was uh, this organizing principle that would have brought order to everything. So they believed in a logos. They didn't think it was personal. They just thought it was something. Something had to make sense of all this. Something had to keep all of this together. They called it the logos. Now for the Jew, logos was pointing back to the word that God would have spoken at any time in their history. So again, it wasn't personal in and of itself. It was just a personal expression of a personal God. John takes it way beyond what any of them would have expected because this word isn't just a word. It's personal. That word existed before anything was made. So in the beginning, the word was. He then goes on to explain that the personal word or the living word, the living logos was with God. Now that phrase does a couple of things. First of all, that term with literally would be towards. So what John is doing, doing is he's distinguishing the word from God. He, his, he's saying there was something called the word, the logos, and it existed with God, but there's some kind of differentiation made here. Maybe a better way to think about 
being with God or towards God, uh, one commentator said, think of it like being face to face. So there was something called the word that was face to face with God before anything had been made. One commentator explains this, the word was more than merely in the presence of God, but there existed a kind of interactive reciprocity between the word and God. It's interacting with the Father. So quick review, in the beginning was the word, that word was eternal and personal, And the word was with God. The word was face-to-face interacting with God. And then finally, the word was God. Now that should just blow our minds. How can the word, whatever it is, be before all of creation, be with God interacting with him, and also be God? Remember that word glory I used a moment ago? John is leaving no ambiguity. The word isn't like God. The word doesn't simply possess divine attributes, although he does. He isn't, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, he's not just a God which is a complete misunderstanding of the original language. The word is God in the very same sense that the father is God. That's what he's saying. God and the word are one in essence, but distinct in person. This is the foundation of Trinitarian theology. The idea of father, son, and spirit, all God, but distinct in person. This is it right here. And you and I, I know that you don't understand that. I don't either. That it's completely violates everything else that we know in the world, right? There's no illustration that perfectly captures the Trinity. But it's in the word, the written word, which is talking about the living word. And so we believe it to be true. Here's how the writer of Hebrews understood what I just read from John 1. He, that is the logos, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. helpful to see how the writers of scripture understood the other writers of scripture to help us understand how to interpret it. With all of that in mind, let's think about what the word represents as it relates to God. Here's some things to consider. In the Old Testament, think about this from the book of Genesis, when God spoke, reality was formed. That's what a word of God meant in that time. Eight times in the book of Genesis, we see this phrase, and God said. 
and then it formed reality. More on that next week. When God spoke, something about him was revealed that would not be known any other way. That made me think about this phrase that Jesus used twice. You can just jot down Matthew 12, 34 and Luke 6, 45. Now think about this. Jesus was talking about human beings, but he said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So every time God spoke, he was revealing the abundance of his heart. And Jesus is called the word. So whatever it is that you learn about Jesus, you are learning about the very heart of God the Father. In fact, he said, if you know me, you know him. Because I'm just like him. And whatever you and I know about God that is actually true, you know only because he revealed it to you. I mean, it's, if you need some gratitude in your life, that would be a great place to start. To just think again and again and again. Whatever it is that you know about God, he showed it to you. He revealed it to you. Finally, God's word was and is the means of forging relationship. Think about language just in horizontal terms. Our relationships hinge upon the spoken word. Think about a, a couple getting married. What do they do? They speak to one another. They commit themselves. They covenant to live till death do us part. They say words that forge the relationship they hope to keep. I want to go back to that Hebrews passage. Go back to verse 1 in chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews said this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the word, the logos, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, more on that next week. And then what I read a moment ago, he is the radiance, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is speaking. The question is, are you listening? And I, I, what I felt convicted about is there's two kinds of listening. You probably know this, active and passive. So I can be busy about everything in my life, passively listening 
just recalling things that might maybe I already know, just kind of coasting on the stuff that I've already gained or I've already, quote, heard, missing completely what God is saying right now in his word. I want to be an active listener. Maybe that's something that we can all commit ourselves to over these next four weeks is to actively listen to what it is our glorious God might want to say to us about the living word and be changed by it. If we are not listening, we will not be prepared for his return. And that's what this season is about, remembering so that we can be ready. Here's what we're getting ready for. Jot down Revelation 19, 11 through 13. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He is coming. And we can be ready, but it will, be, it will require us to listen to the word and then respond. As we were singing just a moment ago, hallelujah, he is good. I want you to take a moment, if you would, as we move into this season of reflection and contemplation. You may not be a contemplative person. That's okay. But would you be willing over the next four weeks to just sit quietly, set aside time and just to sit and invite God to reveal himself to you, to speak to you through his word. He wants to be known. He wants you to see him for who and what he really is. But there are no shortcuts. There's no way to get there except just to sit down with his word, the written word, to learn about the living word. So I just consider that. Ask the Lord to prompt you with some ideas or thoughts about how to go about doing that over the next several weeks and then let's see what God does with us in this beautiful precious glorious Advent season all right take a moment prayerfully consider that and Jeff will conclude our time
Good morning, Lord. Your, your written word says this about the word, the living word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, Psalm 119, who walk in the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his words, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your word to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your word. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your words. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous word. I will keep your word. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you out. Let not me wander from your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your words. With my lips I declare all the words of your mouth. In the way of your words I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your words and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your word. I will not forget your word. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. And we pray like we always pray, but with a very specific focus this morning, that we may be a people, we may be a church that loves your word because we love you. And they are the same. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning and pray, even as Monty said, that over the next four weeks, we would have this mentality of preparation in order for transformation and to prepare there is thinking and sitting and praying and talking about your word your written word that leads us to the living word Lord I pray we would draw close to you in the coming days and we would in the busyness of this month there is no more busyness than in December that we would find ourselves pulling away very intentionally, opening your word, asking you to speak to us, that your spirit would take your word and make it come alive so that we know you intimately. We love you. We're grateful for this morning. Pray you would do a really, really sweet and powerful work in us. And everyone said, amen.